0: Here we go!
1: Neutron proton mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, track, your radium, if you're always your radium, Molecule molecules, spontaneous combustion, pow! Law of death, proportion gain, ink anyway, weight, I'm every element around.
2: Welcome to Spark Science, where we explore stories of human curiosity. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff and I'm an astrophysicist and pop culture enthusiast.
1: And I'm Jordan Baker, comedian, home inspector, and naturally curious person.
2: Joining us today in studio is Dr. Melissa Rice, planetary geologist, Western professor, and our resident Martian, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and Dr. Jim Davenport, astrophysicist and science blogger.
1: Uh, We're here today to talk about exoplanets. Thank you all for coming because I want to know more about exoplanets
2: too. Let's talk about this famous announcement that came out recently, the TRAPPIST-1 announcement. So we all have kind of a minimal, <laughs> or I have a minimal um, understanding about this announcement, but I'm going to let you or Melissa kind of take it away. of um, What was this announcement and why is it so exciting?
3: So the TRAPPIST-STAR has a really long telephone number for a name. like. Two mass J one eight two three yeah you know, like twenty digits long. Right. And it got shortened to Trappist because the star was first observed with the Trappist telescope.
0: Right.
1: Um, Which was so, of course named after for the uh, monks who brew beer. Yeah, that's the right. The that's, I think that's right.
3: Okay. No, I actually don't know why they called why they call it Trappist.
1: Um,
0: okay.
2: I think it oh, was oh, it was ignorance. a dude though, right? It was it's gotta
3: was some, be a dude.
2: It was some old dude. I, I, I'm <laughs> probably wrong. Actually, we're gonna have to like.
3: I know. We'll, at the break, we'll go to the Wikipedia. Right, and, and
2: we'll, then we'll come right. back and we'll, we'll talk about do it. Do research
1: <laughs> during the show, yeah. <laughs> right? Right. and then we'll fix it in post. <laughs>
2: but I think I think maybe our our watchers and listeners might be interested, in, and maybe even Jordan. We, there's so many things. In the universe, right? There's so many things that we observe that these, like all these objects, have these like super long names. Yeah,
3: that's right. Yeah, so we give them these ridiculous telephone numbers for names because right. well, we they're have longer
2: to keep... than telephone numbers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because
3: <laughs> we have to keep track of you know 10 million or a billion of these objects in right. a given survey. So uh, Trappist One was the first star observed by the Trappist program that they found two planets around. So that was okay. cool. And a few years ago, they got really stoked about it. We have papers here which has some of the history in there. Yeah, that's
2: what we keep on looking um, to for our viewers.
3: Yeah, these papers here. Yeah, so they have uh, two planets, so TRAPPIST-1, B, and C. Okay. So these are the two planets they first discovered. And so then they followed up the system for years and years and years with um, Spitzer Space Telescope data, with I think Hubble Space Telescope, and they discovered in uh, the Spitzer data, they disco- which is infrared, yeah. they discovered six other Planets, right. So um, a total of, no, five of the planets. So a total of five, yeah, five seven planets, planets total, yeah. yeah. And where one of the planets, they only had um, like a partial orbit. They only had like one or two transits. So these And were all, we'll
2: talk yeah. about, for our listeners and our fur viewers, we're going to talk about like how to find those, what, what do we mean by transits, which right, was, right, right. we also talked about it at a previous show with Dr. Kevin Covey, oh. exoplanets. So this is like exoplanet right. 2. Video, right? Yeah,
3: it's <laughs> video edition. Yeah, the video, video, right. video edition. Yeah. Um,
2: okay, so so yeah. they had a little like sort of data for one of these planets. Right.
3: So sort of data for one of these planets. So they they knew there were seven planets at least, and um, this is really exciting. This is the first system where besides the sun, where we know there are at least seven planets. So in our solar system, we know there are eight planets. It used to be nine.
2: Right, we're not, we can get so into let's that. Let's not later. talk about the controversy. <laughs> yes, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean I think we're we should, not a controversial show. I think we should take this controversy. Yeah, well,
2: we'll hit. We'll
3: hit. <laughs> That's a different episode. Yeah. So they killed Pluto. Yeah. <laughs> <and>, uh, <laughs> You're
2: like, we're not going to talk about controversy. <laughs> but it's killed dead. Pluto. But,
3: but it's dead. Yeah. Uh, so it no
2: longer exists.
3: But <laughs> so, so we know we need we need to be able to form planets like this around other stars for yeah. life like we know it to be common. Right. So this is the first planet system that yeah. has at least seven planets. Which is really cool. It's like a new record for number of planets around a single star. Um, what was the old record? It was like five, maybe six. Yeah. It's pretty good. It's, I mean, it's pretty good. <laughs>
0: well, There's
1: no such. Right? Five like, is
3: pretty good. Yeah, right? <laughs> It's a lot. What are you going to do with five planets? I don't know. Lots. We could do
1: something. Yeah. Right?
2: Well, I mean, so from what I like watched and read about it. Um, The other cool thing about this system is that there are a fair amount of planets inside the habitable zone. So this is, I'm going to throw my question to Melissa now. Mm. Um, So once we have those three planets in the habitable zone, now we have planets like Mars, which you study. And we have like, maybe we could have Earth, maybe we can have things with water, right?
4: Yeah, so first let's define what a habitable zone is. Yes. So it's basically what it sounds like. The zone in which we think planetary surfaces might be inhabitable. So that doesn't mean that they're inhabited. We're not making the leap to say that ET exists on any of these planets yet. So we have this way of estimating which of these planets might be habitable. And by that we just mean that liquid water theoretically could be stable on the surface. Right. So planets that are too close to the star are, in so- are too close to be in the habitable zone because they're too hot and any water on the surface would boil away. So Venus is in that situation in our solar system. Planets that are too far away from the star, any water that would be on the surface would be frozen all the time. We don't think that's a place where life can really thrive and take hold. So that is outside the habitable zone. And Mars right now in our solar system is just on the edge of that. So in our solar system, aliens in the Trappist planets looking at us with, probably guess that Earth would be the inhabited planet because we are in that habitable zone. Some people call it the Goldilocks zone or the sweet spot. Right. So sweet how spot. many, yeah. Jim, I forget how many of the Trappist planets are in this classic habitable so zone. So in the
3: classic habitable zone, it's three, as, right. as uh, Regina said. Um, so something like three of them, one's sort of on the inner edge, one's in the middle and one's on the outer edge. Right.
2: Well, like us, it's like looking in a mirror.
3: That's right. What I think is important to remember, though, is this star is very small. This is what's called a, a cool dwarf, mm-hmm. uh, an M-dwarf, we call which it. Which
2: is what
4: you studied which is what in I studied, graduate right. school. Because he's a right. hip guy. Because um, yeah, I am going to stars. Uh,
3: we're studying these cool stars <laughs> oh. well before they were cool.
0: Um,
3: <laughs> which is what makes you hip. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I'm so <laughs> hip, yeah. yeah. Um,
2: You're the first hipster.
3: That's true. Yeah. <laughs> So this star is much smaller than the Sun, and so we have to shrink the habitable zone accordingly, right? Mm, if, you, okay. if you make the, the fire smaller, you got to move in closer to so stay the campfire, to, to, yeah. the campfire to yeah. stay warm, right? So the same analogy goes with the habitable zone. As you make the star small like 10% or 12% the mass of the Sun, Whew, it's really, really small. It's a really small oh, star. It's like wow.
1: 10%. So um, how big are the planets?
3: So the planets we do think, uh, yeah, the planets are roughly Earth or Mars sized. So they, they appear to be the right size for so they Earth have to be
2: really close.
3: But they're really close. Right? These huh. things have a year, so their entire orbit around the star. A year for these guys is like 10 days, 12 days. Um, the longest one is Our something days. like 18 days. Yeah. yeah. 18 days to go all the way around the star, which gives you an idea how close they are. They're right up close to the star. So, mm. so while there's still a lot of planets and they are the right size, we think, to be rocky Earth-like or Mars-like planets—they're really close to the star, and so there's some different rules that may uh, apply here in terms of what we call habitable. So yeah, the classic habitable zone is three planets. Whether any of them are actually habitable, I think, is another <laughs> another interesting question.
4: Right. They're showing these artist renditions of these planets, and they are—they're all. They're right. all We have those. Some
2: of those here. They the all idea. look
4: like variations of the Earth. Yeah. And the artist renderings—they yeah. have various amounts of water on the surface, clouds, rocky mm-hmm. bits, but we have no idea what these planets are made of, right? Mm-hmm. We don't even know for sure that they have solid surfaces, although they're in close enough to their star. They probably form from rocky and metal bits and they're, they probably have solid surfaces, but we have no idea if they have atmospheres. We yeah. have no idea if there is water on the surface to even be in a liquid form. Mm-hmm. Or if they um, have
2: magnetic fields so that to keep them protected from radiation, right?
4: Right, right. So I think that a lot of the, the wild speculation that you see in news stories and blogs online, um, that's wishful thinking. And there's definitely the potential for these guys to be habitable, but we we have, have no idea. All we know is that they are in this theoretical spot. And what we're learning for, from the exploration of our own solar system is that, you don't have to just be in this classical habitable zone that's the right distance from your campfire that the habitable zone can doesn't necessarily have to be a sweet spot distance from the sun but maybe the habitable zone is a sweet spot distance beneath the surface of a planet Mm. so in our own solar system aside from earth the only places we think might be inhabitable today are that icy moons in the outer solar system way, way outside of this classic habitable zone that are places where there might be oceans underneath the surface. Right, like Europa. Like Europa. favorite moon ever. Yeah. Yeah, so some (laughs) of these (laughs) Trappist planets that might be outside the habitable zone, they're not getting as much love or talk today. Maybe those are the ones Mm. that are actually habitable because they have water, maybe not on the surface, but deeper underneath.
2: Thanks for listening to Spark Science. You are listening to our interview about exoplanets in the habitable zone with Dr. Rice and Dr. Davenport.
3: I think it's also important to remember that these stars aren't aren't eternal, aren't constant um, over all time. And so in the past, uh, Trappist, the star, was probably a lot hotter. And so if these planets have been in the same location the whole time, they may have been uninhabitable and as Trappist has cooled. On a sort of its main lifetime, its main sequence lifetime, uh, they may now technically be in the habitable zone. So this outer planet may have been the sweet spot, uh, and now that habitable zone has sort of walked inwards as the star has cooled.
4: Um, yeah. Or on the flip side, planets move around right. too. Yeah. So we can't assume that these planets have always been in this order of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven mm-hmm. their entire period. It they could switch have all places. been Plutos. They could. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, I <laughs> mean, planetary migration is uh, a <laughs> well, ongoing about, field right Let's now. talk about planetary
2: migration, because that I don't understand at all. I mean, like, for a- any of the cl- um, classes I've taken in undergrad and in grad school, it was like so- it gets hit by something and then it moves, or it has a really, really wonky orbit. Mm. Is there other explanations for planet- planetary movement? in a solar system?
4: Yeah, there are models of planetary migration and planets swapping places within our own solar system, like, wow. just from gravitational interactions. Oh, wow. And the physics of that is beyond anything I can okay. describe here, let alone even understand.
2: <laughs> and it would but... be a slow process, though. We're not talking like a giant asteroid comes in, knocks it out, and you know
4: so in like geological billiards. time scales it would still be you know a fast catastrophic thing oh, okay very soon after the formation of the planets oh got it okay. so so there is a model where planets in our own solar system the large gas giant planets have switched places mm. and that through that the gravitational rea- interactions of those planets switching places they basically create chaos in the outer solar system, fling any small asteroid-sized bodies or planets that haven't quite formed yet, fling them, some of them, to the inner solar system. They bombard the surface of the moon and Mars and the surface of the Earth and maybe wreck havoc for early life forms just starting to take hold. And we actually have a record of this. Ah, this would have been way before the dinosaurs okay. though. This way, would have been right. when it's been like their bacterial yeah. ancestors, okay. yeah. But we do have this record on the moon of this one period in time when it seemed like the moon was just getting pummeled all at once. And so one explanation for this called the late heavy bombardment, this period when the moon was just being pummeled by all these things at once, is this is when planetary migration was occurring way out in the outer solar system, flinging things in to the inner solar system. And banging up the moon, and then at the same time, things could have also been flung out to the far reaches of the solar system, and maybe that's a way to get Kuiper belt objects so far away and things into the, even the Oort cloud. So planetary migration can f stuff up.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Is that why the moon looks like Swiss cheese? Because it has a bunch of dents all over it? Yeah, exactly.
4: Mm. It's just busted up. It's been yeah, been hurt. It's been hurt. it was it the nerd of the solar system. Right. You know. <laughs> well, this <laughs>
2: proves that I did I never took um, planetary <laughs> geology. Like all of my astronomy classes were like n- not about the planets at all. Mm. But you were gonna add something. So I, I was gonna cool. add
3: just that, you <clears> know, <throat> as, as Melissa's saying, the moon took a beating, but so did the Earth. Yeah. Right? the yeah. Earth would have had to take that same beating. You just don't see it anymore because oceans and wind and you know what we call weather.
1: Weather. What? Well, well, weather. 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 <laughs> 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 Hold on. Weather. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Tell like, me more. Like rain. Yeah. Isn't that a uh, Chinese hoax? Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs>
2: Well, what I like, <laughs> what's good about our video recording too is that for our listeners, I'm so very sorry, but for our watchers, mm. I'm going to ask the students to put in pictures of weather and put in pictures of yeah. these Trappist artist renditions. So we'll be able to see that.
3: Yeah, look at this beautiful day here on Trappist. I mean, this is yeah. like, oh, yeah. Is that like a boat on And there's
2: that. actually jobs. <laughs> I mean, like, you can get jobs doing these artist renditions. But I, I want to take us a step back because I, I do want to talk about your own fields and how they relate to, like, exoplanets. Mm. But before we do that, Melissa. Melissa has been on every season. This is this is your third season. Our third Let's season. Let's keep it going. Congratulations. Mel- um, Dr. <laughs> Rice was our first uh, guest. So, j- for our listeners, if this is new to them, I kind of want to ask uh, you and Jim to kind of explain what you do and kind of how you got into that. Because um, I I like to have our listeners kind of know who they're listening to. So mm. I'm going to let Melissa
4: go first because she's always
2: first. She's a pro. So. Yeah. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, I don't remember what I've said before, That's fine. so That's fine. Fine. hopefully yeah. it's consistent. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully it's the same story. People every time. Going back to. I got, got it logged in
1: here. I'm going to catch you. Yeah.
4: <laughs> so, Our when I when say. I went to college, I didn't know what, what I really wanted to study. So I went to a liberal arts college, um, kind of like Western that had a huge range of possible things I could study so that I could take the sampler platter and figure it out. Right. But I knew that astronomy was one of the options I was considering along with environmental science, women's studies, biology pre-med. So I wanted That's to go to a place stuff. that had a telescope. <laughs> Yeah. so I went to college and was taking some classes and eventually worked out that yeah this astronomy thing is pretty cool and that uh, that wasn't an interest that I'd had since a little kid I was a little kid I Gina knows that I still haven't really watched Star Trek, yeah. and so I know it's, it's a shame Taylor in my and field. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't really have a. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I
2: don't
4: know. <laughs> Let's segregate. Now. Table Come is on, we're trying yeah. to create a more inclusive field right. from people for people no. from. No. That's actually my job. But, <laughs> that, that is my job. But. She's doing
0: that. Yeah. So
4: yeah. So don't exclude the Star Trek ignorant. I'm not. I'm, I'm <laughs> so trying to be open-minded about it a lot of people we work with in astronomy and Jim I'm sure you experienced this too they knew they were going to be astronomers from day one right
2: and yeah, like I learned how to walk then I looked up in the stars exactly. I was going to be an exactly exactly yeah, <laughs>
4: yeah. and, I just, yeah.
2: Up here. and I just showed up
4: <laughs> and I think that certainty is intimidating to is. people who get to college or even beyond and mm-hmm. still have no idea what they want to do and then yeah. they think oh well everyone I know who's a scientist and who studies space, they've known they wanna do that and they've been working towards that since day one, that means that those opportunities are closed for me. So I just just like to emphasize that I wasn't a super sciencey kid who was on this one track because hopefully somebody out there who's maybe still trying to declare their major, doesn't know what they wanna do, it's not too late. It's never too late. I know Mm -hmm. people who have gone back to school in their 40s -hmm. Uh, to become professional astronomers and who are doing exceptionally well now.
2: My, so, my never too late. My dad's going back to school, going to college for the first time, going to be an anthropologist. Wow. So, and, and he's yeah. 63. So Awesome. Good yeah. for him. Cool. But, I mean, I, I do want to reiterate what you are saying, because we've had a lot of guests on, and Jordan might remember this, not every one of them has said, like, from the day I, when I was little, right. I've known. Like, a, a good amount of them have said, like, I kind of figured it out in, in college, yeah. which, which yeah. is kind of... I mean, and that's what college should
4: be for, the figuring it out. Yes. Kind of place. Yeah, it's hard though.
2: Yeah. So what is your research now? Just to kind of add on to that.
4: Yeah. So when I was in college, decided on astronomy. At the very end of college, realized that there was this place called Mars. And uh, <laughs> well, let's That's say my happens. astronomy education was not so bad up to that point yeah. that it took me to my senior year to realize there was a place called Mars. Yeah. But what I, it did take me to my senior year to realize was that Mars was not just a planet but a world Mm -hmm. it had geology it had landscapes it had all sorts of things that i had experience with here on earth and so unlike things like black holes pulsars galaxies nebulae you know they weren't just theoretical constructs mars was a place that i could have some kind of resonance with my own experience as a person on a planet so I was like, "Hey, that's cool." Yeah. Kind of meld the experiential with the intellectual, and right. um, do not just astronomy but, but geology at the same time. So I. Figured out Mars was where it was at. Went to grad school to work with the Mars Rover program, which was being operated out of Cornell University. So I went there for my PhD, and just so happened, by the time I was finishing my PhD, that was when the Curiosity Rover was about to land. So timing worked out really well for me to graduate and go work for the new rover mission, the Curiosity Rover. And then got a job up here at Western, and NASA Uh, allowed me to stay affiliated with the Curiosity rover mission so I can still do that but from here in Bellingham.
2: Yeah. And that's our first episode so people check that out. (laughs) Welcome back to Spark Science. Uh, We are talking with Dr. Jim Davenport and Dr. Melissa Rice about exoplanets. I'm going to bring it back to uh, Jim, and he's going to talk about his background a little bit. But we did, at the break, like we said we would, look up why it's called TRAPPIST-1.
3: TRAPPIST stands for Transiting Planets and Planetesimals Small Telescope.
2: Wow, so it wasn't some dude. I am sexist. Planetesimals. (laughs)
3: Planetesimals. <laughs> Just Pla- like our first time. Planetesimals, yeah, so these are like mini proto-baby
1: planets. Proto-baby planets. Yeah,
3: so we think, sure. Earth, when yeah. like Melissa was talking about the formation of the solar system, planets swapping places, things running into each other, uh, these big early proto-planetary things are called planetesimals or like small objects. Yeah, like Pluto, right? Like, like Pluto.
4: Yeah. Uh-oh. We
3: just killed off
1: Pluto,
4: though. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's still there. It's just a teenager. So it grew up to be a dwarf planet instead of a real planet.
1: Oh. Uh, yeah. That's a hot topic.
4: Yeah, it is.
2: <laughs> dwarf planet. So back to uh, Jim's background. We've been talking about like non-stereotypical, like how you get into science, how you got your PhD, that kind of stuff. And since I've known you for a while, it's not like the exact same story as a lot of the faculty here, okay. I would say. Okay, cool. Is that, is, it a, is that an insult? I don't know. No, no. I mean, <laughs> it's
3: cool to be unique.
2: Yeah, sure
3: <laughs> it is. No. Um, so when I, yeah, sort of to mirror what uh, Melissa was saying, when I was uh, 18 going off to college, uh, I was like, well, I was 18, so I was totally convinced I knew what I was going to do. And <laughs> I was going to be an astronaut. That was like my goal.
2: And that's what you wanted since you were like baby?
3: Um, since I was like a kid, like I watched way too many um versions of Apollo thirteen, like on you know wore that VHS tape out. Mm.
2: Um you, know. <laughs> you so, also love Tom Hanks is so, what you talking about.
3: Huge I'm a Tom Hanks fan. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's He's true hilarious. actually um, <laughs> that's true. So I
2: love you Tom Hanks. Just like send it out into the world.
3: Tom Hanks call me. Yeah. Yeah. Um Get my number. So so watched a lot of Apollo thirteen. Yeah. Uh et cetera. I was a Star Trek fan, but I agree with Melissa. It's not required no. uh, to be a professional astronomer. Next by, gen? Uh, you know, DS9. Oh, DNS9. Man. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. We'll talk more later. Yeah, that's good. So, so I went to, to college. I was totally convinced, You know, being 18, that I was like, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to yeah. be an astronaut. I'm going to be an aerospace engineer, because mm. that sounded like how you get to space, was you build a spaceship. Well, you,
2: you build it, know. and then you get in it. <laughs> right, right. That right, was your thought right. process. So, okay. Well, you know, like,
3: you look at the resumes of people who have astronaut as their job right. title, and, like, a bunch of them are engineers.
2: A lot of them are pilots, too.
3: Well, that was not in the cards. <laughs> okay. So I was clearly not, like, built to be an Air Force pilot, so I thought, okay, what else can I do? Right. And um, yeah. I can I can learn math was the answer. Real good. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> Whee! Yeah. so I went to college yeah, yeah thank you. Uh, so I went to college and uh, was really bad at becoming an engineer mm. like bombing my classes not getting into the major you know it was okay. not competitive and it was like a good check with reality like okay this is uh, obviously not what I'm going to be doing right um, but
2: instead of giving up on your dreams what did you do
3: um you know you do the college wander around thing. so I also went to a big school um, where there was a lot of majors and so I tried a lot of different things out, and I contemplated a lot of different career paths. And in the meanwhile, I was taking sort of science and math classes, knowing it was gonna be somewhere in the sciences and math field that I wanted to land, and took uh, intro astronomy class, and then my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, also took an astronomy class, it just intro, we call it Astronomy 101, and um, I was like doing her homework, and like, oh yeah, this is so awesome, and she got an A, so I felt good about that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> should we put that on <laughs> I did her own work. No, I mean, I helped her with her she's, homework. I she's very good. successful.
3: No, she's way smarter than I am, so it worked out totally okay. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this astronomy thing actually is awesome, and yeah. maybe I should check this out. And so I took a few more classes, joined the major, and then got, like, super sold on it. was like, yeah, that's this is it. I'm going to be an astronomer. Like, yeah. I figured it out. So now that I'm like 20, and i figured it out. It's yeah. good. Yeah. Check.
4: It's yeah. a rough two years <laughs> it's yes. Life comes out to
3: fast. <laughs> two years later, you got it. So yeah. uh yeah. figured it out once again, move forward. I'm like, all right. So I'm looking at the career path. All right, how am I going to be an astronaut being an astronomer? Right. Like I get to you know, astronomy, astronaut. That's only like a little bit of a different word. Mm-hmm. So it seems like it, it's, it, it, it held same together. It's held together. And I, was, uh, I got to apply to grad school. I got to get a PhD because that's how you be an astronomer. Right. Thus, I can be an astronaut. Got to be a PhD. Uh, so I applied to all these grad schools and didn't get in to any of them. Yeah. And that was an expensive. And.
2: And that's when I met you.
3: Right. Well, it was right after that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it was the next. Yeah. It was like the next day. Yeah. Um,
2: <laughs> you know, so
3: applying to grad schools, yeah. so for people who don't know, um, is like a really difficult.
2: Stressful, expensive. Soul-bearing
3: and expensive process. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at shelling out, you know, for 11 grad schools I was out like twelve, thirteen hundred bucks, you know, and I would, I had been like working at the library shelving books. I was not loaded. Yeah. And and that forced me to, so this is sort of the, I guess, non-traditional part or the, just the, the real-life part. Yeah. It forced me to really think about, okay, what am I gonna do? You yeah. I was like a mediocre student in the end of it, yeah. um, who just got really stoked about science, but not about doing his homework. Right. And I ended up at a terminal master's program, so meaning You're only, die. only yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, meaning only two-year program, only masters. There's yeah. no chance of going on. Of course, so, you know this. Yeah. And, so
2: I, I had met for our listeners and watchers. I had met um, Jim in his last year of undergrad, and I was in my f- third year to second year of of graduate school, and and I had. Done a terminal master's at San Diego State University and because I didn't know what I wanted to do after I mm-hmm. got my bachelor's degree And I was very unsure and did terribly on the GRE And yeah. and so I kind it's of um, The
3: graduate, graduate
2: it's like the SAT exam? to get into college, but it to get oh. into graduate school yeah. So general
4: requi-
3: graduate Well I'm glad you got graduate know Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We <laughs> didn't do good on it. We didn't do well Clearly <laughs> yeah. That's
4: yeah. the yeah. first question on the exam What, what,
3: what are, you are you taking, taking?
2: <laughs> Graduate yeah Rec, uh, record, exam. record exam. So so I went to San Diego State and I, I got my terminal uh, master's degree, which means yeah, like you you just have that master's. It's mostly for people that are like in industry that only need a master's. They're not using it to like go on and get a PhD. So I did mine in physics and I had just met Jim and he was telling me he's like I'm thinking I'm gonna go to get a terminal master's in astronomy and I was like where? And he's like San Diego State. And I'm like oh my god, me too! Like I already did that. So
3: there's only like. Two, I mean, there are hundreds of places you can get a PhD in the U.S. in astronomy and in physics. Yeah. <laughs> there are, like, two places you can get a terminal master's. Yeah. There's lots of places where you can get a master's and decide this isn't for you and walk away and it's not a big deal. Right. But only two places that I know of that you can get a master's explicitly in astronomy. One is San Diego State University. The other is Wesleyan. Um, oh. Which is, I mean, I, I've not been, but I heard it's really excellent. Wesleyan. Wesleyan, yeah.
2: yeah. Where is that?
3: Connecticut?
2: Not Wellesley. Those get, no. those get confused. They get confused all the time. All the yeah. time.
3: East Coast, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
2: this will always be from the West Coast. <laughs> right. It's all the same. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of used it because there are these things called bridge programs now. Yeah, that like if, right. if you're not the best student or maybe you didn't get any research experience in undergrad, you kind of need something to kind of transition to go on to graduate school and to get your PhD. So there are these programs that kind of help you with that. It's kind of like a transition time between... Your bachelor's degree and your phd program and these terminal masters basically i mean it was that before there were bridge programs yeah, so we kind of right. made our own bridge program
3: yeah and i think i've heard you say this too where a lot of people say why would you why would you go get a master's in like astronomy that's useless who wants that it's not useless yeah um and it was a good means to an end like it was hard it was two hard years of having to do I all i didn't the say growing. it was
2: useless i said it was like the museum <laughs> no, i have it. heard from other people yeah yeah um yeah. but it,
3: it was a hard couple of years yeah. um but it was a good means to an end. And right. I would recommend, you know, it, it was two years of learning how to be a good student um, and getting rid of all the bad habits that mm-hmm. I had that, yep. ma- that sort of put me in that situation. Absolutely. Um, and in the end, I had a degree where I could have walked away and done something cool in the tech industry or mm-hmm. something. And instead I said, yeah, I want to stay in this. And, and I fared much better in the PhD application round the next time. And mm-hmm. I actually got into a school right. uh, and the rest was history.
2: And yeah. now you're a hotshot, you know, postdoc.
3: Postdoc, yeah. yeah. So right now my title—it sounds yeah, well, sounds uh, great. Whoa, right? yeah, hotshot postdoc over right. here.
2: There's only um, so many at Western, right? How many um, science postdocs are there at Western? Uh, there is one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Um, right. So right now I am a National Science Foundation postdoctoral fellow.
2: Those are uh, hard to get.
3: Yeah. So there's about. I mean, I've never tried. I yeah. could probably do it. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably. <laughs> it's probably true. I don't know. Um, yeah. This is probably yeah. like eight a year. Yes, like eight or ten a year. Um, In the whole nation? Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. it's a three-year well, so
1: How many people are actually applying? I
2: don't like know. a thousand? No,
3: no like, not even. Like a like hundred. Maybe.
2: So a thousand divided <laughs> by ten.
0: Yeah.
3: Okay. I think that's about right, yeah. So anyway, so it's a, it's a three-year postdoctoral gig. So I finished my PhD a year and a half ago, two years ago. And I've been doing this now for almost two years. Yeah. So I have one more year left here in beautiful Bellingham. Right. And then I'll be off to the next the next adventure.
2: So I mean, so what's your research, and how does that relate to what we're talking about today?
3: Yeah. Here's the tie-in, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's so, where the action is. So my research focuses not on the data that the TRAPPIST system was discovered in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, I focus on data from the NASA Kepler mission. So Kepler was explicitly designed as uh, an exoplanet hunting telescope. Right. So Kepler spent four years just staring at one patch of the sky, uh, the same patch of the sky with an sort of unblinking eye. Every thirty minutes, it took a picture of that patch of sky. I mean, that's
1: it's kind of blinking.
3: It's like a really it's, short it's blink. Thirty minutes. But thirty minutes over a year. Mm. Just
1: saying. It's you quick said quick. it was an unblinking eye. and It's blinking. Just for the. the, the Right. Short blank. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I'm going to take a quick little... <laughs> I'm just blinking. Just blinking. 30-minute nice. blink. 30-minute blink It's yeah. good. Yeah.
0: Take me back to the
2: Welcome back to Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff and we're listening to our interview with Dr. Melissa Rice and Dr. Jim Davenport on the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 planetary system.
3: <laughs> so yeah. Kepler stares at the same patch of sky and what it's looking for is a planet passing in front of its parent star. Right. So passing between us and the parent star. Right. And when it does that it blocks out a very small amount of light. Right. This we call a transit or an eclipse.
2: So are, is the Trappist, are they not using um, They are, They yeah. are, okay. So the same just, kind of method. They
3: just didn't do it. So Trappist was outside of the standard Kepler field. Kepler, okay. you know, picked one field and had to stay there. Until... Trappist st- was off some other direction.
2: But uh, Kepler's stuff, like, stopped working, right? So Kepler... We have a show on that. Yeah, so... Check that out, check out Yeah. <laughs> oh,
3: check out the link right here. Yes. Uh, right. Is that not how this works? No? Yes, okay. yeah, we'll do that. It's um, an <laughs> infomercial. Yeah. 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 Call now. Yeah. And <laughs> So Kepler had hardware, hardware malfunction yes. and could not uh, stably point at one location anymore. And uh, instead, through some really brilliant engineering, uh, was able to stare for 90 days or so at a time in selected fields, like it's say sort of quasi-stable, and look at single fields for a short amount of time. Not four years, but 90-day chunks. And TRAPPIST, by total circumstance of luck and good planning, was able to fall into one of those fields. Uh-huh. So why I'm excited about TRAPPIST is a few weeks ago, NASA released, and they do this every quarter, but they did this extra fast for TRAPPIST, knowing that it was exciting, knowing that a lot of people were wanting to get more data on TRAPPIST. They released publicly, and you can go online and see the data for yourself, um, a whole uh, 90-day or it's like a 75-day chunk of data on the TRAPPIST system from Kepler. We call it K2, because it's the second version of Kepler. Right. And so that's where I get excited about it is, I study the stars behind the planets. Okay.
2: Okay. So I'm going to open this up then to let's ask questions and let's pretend we, you know, let's, you know, theorize about this Mm. system. So I'm going to throw it over to Melissa. So with this smaller star with possibly these three objects in the habitable zone like what would be the 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 most awesome thing that we could find like what i mean what would be a really great scenario and how could we find that like you said we don't know if they have atmospheres like how do we find that if it did what would we that would tell us
4: we can make all the speculations we want yeah but the data that that trappist (laughs) might continue to collect the data that k2 is releasing, it's not gonna tell us what is actually on the surfaces of those planets. So I think the next big advance in exoplanet science that's gonna happen, that's gonna give us some of these hints, is when we can start actually detecting planetary atmospheres. So we can look at the sunlight that is passing through the edge of the planet, which would pass through some of that atmosphere, and we'd see what gases in the planet's atmosphere are absorbing different wavelengths of sunlight. And there are things we can look for when we start to get that kind of data, which is going to require a lot of sensitivity. Um, But when we can start seeing that, we can start looking for things in the atmosphere that don't occur, well, I was going to say naturally, but don't occur without life. So things like a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere like the Earth has, if we weren't here, we being life and all of everything within the tree of life. If we weren't here on the planet, the Earth would not have an oxygen atmosphere. We would not have this 20% O2 in our atmosphere. That is essentially green things constantly pumping oxygen into the atmosphere. And so there has to be some kind of life form to keep the atmosphere in what would not be a natural atmosphere equilibrium state. So if we look at one of these Trappist planets, and we see a strong oxygen signal in its atmosphere, that would be really exciting because that could be a nice fingerprint for life. Also, if we see a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere, that might be a hint that water vapor is evaporating from big bodies of water on the surface. That maybe some of that water vapor is raining out on the surface. That maybe, maybe these planets that are in the habitable zone might actually have water for life to inhabit. So those are some of the things that would be really exciting to find that we might actually, we actually have a chance of learning in our lifetime.
2: I mean, so but you're saying that there's nothing that we have now that um, that has the sensitivity that can actually get that light going through that atmosphere and analyzing that or do yeah,
4: I don't I don't think so, Jim.
3: I mean, I think it's been done for a handful of. Uh, planets around brighter stars than Trappist. Trappist is quite faint. Okay. Um, And so for some of the nearby brighter stars where the signal is stronger, I think it's been done, uh, I think Hubble Space Telescope has been one of the places it's been done, but these features that Melissa's talking about are largely in the infrared. Uh, They're they're easiest to see in the infrared Um, and for that we need an infrared telescope Um, and so for that NASA is building and in a year and a half is launching the James Webb Space Telescope, which is essentially the successor to Hubble. Um, And its main goal is to look at planets like Trappist.
2: Oh, wow. So let me ask a real question. We do have to take a break soon, but one last question about what about objects that have atmospheres here in our solar system? There's us. For Melissa, what other objects in our solar system have atmospheres?
4: So not many. Atmospheres are pretty rare. Venus has an atmosphere. The problem is it has too much atmosphere. Its atmosphere is about 90 times denser than ours, which means greenhouse gases, the greenhouse effect is out of control. Surface of Venus hot enough to melt lead. That's not the kind of atmosphere we want to really find on these trappist planets if we're interested in life. Um, Mars has an atmosphere it's just really thin right now mars's atmosphere is almost purely carbon dioxide and so you would th- think all that co2 in its atmosphere greenhouse effect must be a thing but it has too little atmosphere for the greenhouse effect to really warm its surface mars's atmosphere is a hundred times thinner than earth's atmosphere hmm. so earth mars and venus are kind of the goldilocks Planets, one's too hot for life, one's too cold for life, too much atmosphere, not enough atmosphere, but the Earth is right in the middle. So the Earth is the only planet that has an atmosphere that can sustain life as we know it and can sustain liquid water. On Mars, the atmosphere is too thin for liquid water to even be theoretically possible. Even if wow. the temperature's warmed up on Mars, there's just not enough pressure to sustain water in the liquid stage. Mm. Water behaves like, like CO2 does here on the Earth. So water would look like dry ice does here on Earth, where it mm. goes directly from wow. a solid block and it starts vaporizing into a gas. Wow! So if you, if you try and melt a chunk of dry ice into liquid carbon dioxide, you can't do it. You heat it up, you heat it up, and it just goes straight to gas. That's because carbon dioxide requires higher pressures to be a liquid. Water requires higher pressures than are present on Mars hmm. to be a liquid. So that's a problem. But then, you know, so we think about, okay, the atmospheric pressure that you need to sustain liquid water. Well, what if life doesn't even have to have water? What if it just needs some kind of solvent, some kind of liquid? that that opens up all sorts of other possibilities. So we've got this moon of Saturn called Titan. Titan. I was just going to yeah. like what about Titan? <laughs> <laughs> so Tell Titan me. has yeah. a more earth-like atmosphere in that in its amount of atmosphere and the pressure of atmosphere. But Titan does not have an atmosphere that is made up of the same stuff as us. Titan's atmosphere is hydrocarbons, methane and ethane. So much different kind of atmosphere. And on Titan, it's super, super cold, because it's out at Saturn's orbit, far, far away from the sun. And water is present on the surface, but it's frozen solid. Water is the rock. Mountains are made of, of water ice. It's a pretty wild place. So but there's liquid on Titan that the atmospheric pressure can sustain. And it's liquid hybr- hydrocarbons. Yeah. So methane ethane lakes, and rain, and rivers. So yeah. and we- And like, weather. Yeah. yeah. So that's how, I guess, my work as someone who studies planets specifically in this solar system gets translated into um, more of this exoplanet science. If once we start learning about other weird things that are present in our own solar system, that opens up all these possibilities for even weirder things might exist out there in the Trappist system. Um, if we can, If we know that Liquid methane, ethane is present here in our own solar system. What other liquids might be present over there, that could have life emerging in totally different ways than we're even able to imagine here on Earth? That is awesome,
2: and that's an awesome place to break. We're gonna bring (laughs) back. We're gonna bring it back to these kind of speculations on what these planets could possibly have.
1: to Spark Science. We're talking with Jim Davenport and Melissa Rice about exoplanets. Uh, and we were just talking about uh, Titan. And you are saying that the Titan is covered with frozen water. And I was thinking, uh, you know, that water is sort of a precious resource that we like to have here. And, <laughs> and, uh, and people are always going for the next water thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, spring water. And city (laughs) tap water. What if somebody (laughs) goes to Titan and opens up a water factory bringing all the frozen chunks here, melting it down, and then selling it? You think that could be... Giving people superpowers? Yeah. Or,
4: <laughs> I think that is going to be the next trend among Hollywood divas. Yeah, i,
1: I just throwing that out water. there. Maybe if, if somebody wants to, which, if somebody wants to, that's Tom my Hanks. idea. We've already talked my to Tom idea Hanks, so. is patented. Um, just you
4: know, <laughs> can give, give me, me the
1: royalties it. or whatever.
4: Asteroid mining is kind of an up and coming right. thing, so that's Armageddon. Thing. We also why thought? not mine water elsewhere? Yeah. 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 Hey, whatever gets us onto the surface of Titan. Right. If yeah. it's a bunch of yeah. water-mining corporate
2: people, go for it. Well, I mean, because we've actually talked about this idea, and I, th- I don't know if it was on our Pluto show when we had um, that public event, but we were talking about this, like, mission to Titan where it was going to be a boat, and it was going to, like, sail in these methane seas. Yeah. So what happened to that mission,
4: So that was a proposed one, mission? That was a proposal uh, for a funding program that has since gone through its process of selection, and the Titan boat was not one of the finalists.
2: What is I happening? <laughs> yeah, I know.
4: We're all that angry, a but inside. Yeah. Right?
2: Space, space boat. Yeah, uh, I know. Right,
4: the
1: space boat.
4: What was picked instead? So there are two missions going with the Discovery program. Yeah. One is going to uh, an asteroid, a metallic asteroid. It's like a big hunk of metal. Still and not better.
1: No. no. It's not a, it's not as we cold. already know no. it's a big hunk of metal.
4: Yeah. Big hunk of metal. <laughs> and know. another's going to a Trojan asteroid, which is a big hunk of rock. See, so I, I think done. they should have diversified there. Yeah. yeah, But it's in the
1: shape is. of a horse. I thought <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <Yes. laughs> <Not laughs> it was in the shape of a condom. <laughs> oh, You'd be wrong. It's round.
4: You'd be it's round. round. <laughs> it's a safe space. It is a safe
2: space. <laughs> so, like... We could have a whole show on, like, missions and how they don't get funded. Um, But but I want to bring it back to, like, these speculations, because we were talking about it would be great if it could be like Earth, but like you were saying, even in these outer regions, there could be moons like Titan, and we should, like, kind of pay attention to that as well and speculate on that. But I think Jim was talking about his um, work talks about flares and sunspots, and that can also affect this Goldilocks um, region.
3: Yeah, that's right. So... Trappist being a small star um, has a slightly different, uh, the star itself has a slightly different makeup than the sun. The star um, is much more turbulent. Uh, The surface is like a pot of boiling water. It's much more turbulent. uh, And that drives strong magnetic fields on the surface of the star. And these magnetic fields, um, our sun has them, but they're pretty weak. Um, These fields can cause what we call flares, which are these explosions that happen just above the surface. And material can sometimes get ejected outwards. And our sun does this from time to time, and it's usually not a big concern. Um, right.
2: That's how we have, like, northern lights. Right,
3: yeah. These, these uh, high-energy particles come off the sun, and they can hit the Earth. Um, when they do, they can cause cool things, like the aurora the Northern Lights, uh, they can cause less cool things. Like, like the
2: 19, uh,
3: 1859 solar storm. For 1859 solar storm. or We, <laughs> we all remember that one. <laughs> we
1: were it's one of my favorite
2: stories. We were younger then. I will but, let you take uh, it away, though, the 1859 solar storm. Yeah, so
3: this was the called the Carrington Flare, the Carrington Event. Uh, and this was a very, very large flare that happened on the sun. Um, and then they observed, so this flare was observed, and then 18-ish hours later, there were these massive... Uh, Northern lights that were seen as far south as like Cuba, Cuba. yeah,
2: and wow. it was so bright that there were campers and they actually got out of their tents and they thought it was dawn. yeah, but it wasn't.
3: yeah. so it's wicked bright. and um this <laughs> it's wicked bright bro <laughs> Yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it's called Carrington event because it was ca- it was just him right? It was just Carrington I think looking he, at the I sun. Think he had an assistant. did he really? I yeah. thought it was just him like Carrington?
3: making sp- Carrington Richard Carrington uh, yes he was a British just some, uh, just some dude. sort of astronomer, like a like a Am, like an enthusiastic amateur. A guy with the binoculars. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> well, that of, would have burned okay. his eyeballs out. Yeah. I think he projected, He had right? a projection he of the projected sun. Projected the sun. And he would draw
3: the sunspots every day. Yeah. Uh, and, and this been, one
2: was monstrous. He'd been,
3: been tracking this large spot when he watched the spot kind of like light up and move. And he, in the paper, he says, like, and I ran downstairs just to get, like, you know, Fred, or whoever his assistant was, <laughs> Um, Fred Weasley. <laughs> yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. So the Weasley boys run back upstairs. <laughs> and and the sunspot has changed and they weren't sure what they had, had observed. It was the first time this brightening event, this short duration brightening event, but they were actually seeing the explosion right by the surface of the sun. Yeah. So anyways, these things are really neat.
0: Yeah.
3: Uh, and they're a whole interesting area studying themselves. Trappist being a small star has way more of them than, than the sun does. So not only are these planets 10 times closer to their parent star.
2: <laughs> they're getting hit by these flares.
3: They're getting hit constantly by these flares. This, this star flares like a thousand times more often than the sun, and the flares it produces are probably 10 to 100 times bigger than the flares in the sun. So this could be a real bad day on Trappist B or whatever planet you happen to be standing on drinking your mojito, right. this flare goes off in your face. These yeah. flares can contain 10 to 100 times more x-rays than the flares we see on the sun. So these are really uh, unpleasant events. Yeah, um, So much so that continued exposure to these events could actually chip away at the planet's atmosphere. Um, so when we have a flare hit our, our atmosphere, it just makes it glow and it's pretty and maybe messes with like the power grid.
2: Well, And, and our own uh, magnetic field kind of protects us from the worst of it.
3: Right, exactly. Um, if these planets didn't have any magnetic field, They're screwed um, the <laughs> ultraviolet and x ray radi- radiation could just strip away the atmosphere in 10,000, um, maybe a million years, which on a geological time scale, on a life forming into complex life time scale, is it's a blink of an eye.
4: And that's exactly what we think happened on Mars. So, Mars's atmosphere, like I said, super thin today, hardly has any air around it. But we think that Mars was once a place with a more Earth like atmosphere. Would have been thicker, would have been thick enough to have liquid water on the surface. We see the scars of rivers and ancient lakes that were there on the surface. So the atmosphere had to be thicker to have liquid water. But there's no atmos- There's very little atmosphere now. What happened? We think Mars had a magnetic field that shut off at some point. And then after Mars' magnetic yeah. field shut well, off, I, you seen the movie The Core?
1: Same no, thing. but I'm worried about <laughs> our magnetic field now. It could just yeah. shoot yeah, off. How
4: does it just shut off? Like so, that's... That's... We don't really know. Yeah. That's what I thought. We don't really know. <laughs> We're all going to
1: die. But
4: because Mars is a smaller planet than mm. the Earth, it's possible it has the interior has just cooled off faster than the Earth's. And, and in order to have a magnetic field, you have to have some liquid metal portion on the in, inner core of the planet uh, or the the interior of the planet. And so once that liquid cools down and solidifies. There's no more inner dynamo, no more churning on the inside of the planet generating the magnetic field. Right. Electrons so, need
2: to move for a magnetic field to exist. Right.
4: Yeah, exactly. So your metal needs to be liquid. Right. But we don't really know how that process happens. If it would have cooled off slowly, the magnetic field would have slowly died off, given all the Martians a heads up that something was happening, or if that's something that happens much quicker. Mm. What we do know is that the Earth's magnetic field switches polarities Mm -hmm. every so often, and that seems to happen really fast. So It just happened, didn't it?
2: Or is it going to happen
4: soon? I remember there's, like there's a lot of talk on the internet that yeah. it's yeah. it's going to happen. We're due, yeah. but um, we we really don't know. We don't yeah. have a good model for what causes these magnetic reversals to happen, right. and we don't have a great model for how Mars's magnetic field shut off. And we don't have a great model for how <laughs> for how the Trappist planets whether they should have magnetic fields, or whether they did at some point in time, right. or... I
3: mean, you could imagine that if one of these things had a super strong magnetic field, a super duper magnetic yeah. field, it could, with, it could weather the storm of having right. these magnetic uh, uh, storms of the flares hitting it constantly. You could imagine... Right, seeing, constant
2: ex- assaults. Yeah,
3: having a super strong magnetic field, if it could sustain that, maybe, maybe um, life could still exist down below there, and right. have the atmosphere be held on.
4: Or if there's no magnetic field and the atmosphere gets stripped away and the surface of the planet is just getting bombarded with this harsh solar flare energy, then maybe underneath the surface Mm -hmm. is a place for life to weather that storm continuously. Mm -hmm. So maybe we have to continue our expansion of this definition of habitable zone to be deep down inside planets as well.
2: to Spark Science. We are talking about very close exoplanets with Western Washington University astrophysicist Jim Davenport and NASA's own geophysicist and Mars rover specialist Melissa Rice. Do we have an example in our own solar system about having life be just under the surface other than Europa? Possibly.
4: So there are several of these large icy moons okay. that might have liquid water oceans oh, underneath like
2: enceladus right enceladus
4: okay. yeah enceladus is spewing water vapor out of its south pole right so we know and there's so water there's, there. there's definitely <laughs> water there <laughs> yeah how That's how much deep. of it yeah, how deep <laughs> it is <laughs> but um titan is also a place where there is a liquid water ocean so titan's got all the craziness we've talked about on its surface this um, hydrocarbon rain and lakes and these mountains and rocks made of water ice, but underneath all of that, there's a liquid water ocean on Titan, mm-hmm. and so there could be some kind of biosphere deep inside Titan as well.
1: You gotta go fishing on Titan. Yeah,
4: mm-hmm. totally. Some... And Europa, yeah. yeah Mermaids. Mermen. But how do we... <laughs> Don't assume their
1: are gender.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't. Um, but yeah, So so I wanted to bring us back to the solar flares, flares, because I think, I think we've talked about this very little in other shows, but I'd like to talk about this more. Like, What would happen if there was the 1859 event? What would happen to Earth if we had a solar flare at that, that magnitude? Because the 1859 event, um, there were issues with electricity going through um, telegraph wires mm-hmm. and people were burning their fingers and people were running the telegraph wires without any, um, any power because they were using the, the solar flare energy. Um, but what would happen now? I love talking about that because it's it's really interesting and, yeah, and space and physicists love it too.
3: It's not, yeah, we call it space weather because yeah. like weather, we don't know exactly what will happen on, you know, on yeah. more than like a day-ish time, you know, you, you yeah. have models but they're not really that good right. more than a day out. Um, and you don't really know what the sun's going to produce and throw at you on any given day. So. It's not a matter of like so many things. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, And in 2012, there was a large uh, flare, uh, probably about the size of the Carrington flare, that missed the Earth by like three days. Uh, Enough of the energy hit uh, several of our our satellites you could see the flare coming by. You could sort of see the wave of high energy particles going by and you Hmm. get this sort of static.
2: So you're saying um, that like it, it, it went off this way, and then the Earth was coming, and Something like, like, like three yeah. days yeah. If ago, happened, if we had been there, it would have been bad.
3: I forget if it was three days ahead of us or three days behind okay. us in our orbit, but yeah, plus or minus like three days, it would have smacked right into us. And then it would have not been a theoretical uh, right. problem. We would have had a real big problem on our hands. Right. Um, so when this event happens, like when the Carrington event hit in the 1850s, um, and they're telegraph wires. These long stretches of, of metal wire are perfect for what we call inducing current.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and this is like a great physics um, lab where you can uh, take like a light bulb and wave it around uh, power, power lines. So if you go out into where these high energy power lines are, these big transmission lines, you can wave a light bulb around and it'll glow without being plugged in. Mm-hmm. Or uh, having an idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ding. <laughs> um, so nice. you, you, you can get that induct You can see that induction. Yeah. Um, this is also how like your cordless toothbrush charges through induction, right? So you're getting electrons to excite through other wires. So when this uh, flare hits, you get these wires chock full of electrons. You get a lot of current stuck into these wires all of a sudden that I didn't expect. This can cause a massive power outage. So you could imagine the power grid in, say, the entire Western Hemisphere being knocked out for a day or two, yeah. which would be an enormous, like a catastrophic economic impact. Yeah. A trillion-dollar impact, I think, is what the estimates are, for just having mm-hmm. the power grid completely shut down in, like, U.S., Canada, maybe part of Europe.
2: Yeah, and that's and that's not even talking about the, like, satellites would, which would be affected. Right. All the
3: <laughs> So potentially the GPS satellites, uh, satellites that the military uses. Yeah astronauts. Um, so the astronauts in the space station right. are above uh, a bulk of the magnetic field so they're getting sort of direct exposure. They have to go hide in their little lead-lined line, lead room and, and hope that they are protected enough from that exposure. It would probably ground most air traffic. Yeah, Boats in the ocean would have to like navigate by the stars because they wouldn't have their GPS systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine like the trickle-down and worst of all like television would be off. <laughs> Um,
4: worst of all. Worst
2: of all.
3: It's like, it would be un- borderline unlivable. Right. Uh, at least
2: for but a couple it, days. For a couple days. I mean, right. how are you
1: gonna tweet? Right. How are you gonna tweet? No way to
0: tweet.
2: No way to tweet. Um, <laughs> sad. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> References. Um. So, that that's, that's super interesting. I love that story. I actually tell the Carrington event story whenever I do, like, talks. I'm like, yeah. this is why science is cool, because electricity and magnetism, is a hard subject even when you're a physicist. Like that was not my favorite class. I'm sorry to all my previous professors <laughs> and my friends who teach it. But when you talk about an event like that, that really puts it into perspective that like we need to get we we need to give a crap about this. We need to actually slightly understand electricity and magnetism to yeah. be able to prepare for these things.
3: Yeah, that's right. And we need to like study our own sun to make <laughs> sure we understand how and when and why these things happen. Right. When when the Carrington event happened, they had like 12 hours.
0: Mm-hmm. And they didn't know
3: that that the flare and the aurora storm were connected at the time. They didn't right. know those were connected. Right um, now, now, we do, we do know, <laughs> yeah. and so we're watching the sun. So yeah. NASA has space telescopes called like, uh, Solar Dynamics Observatory, which 12 seconds instead of 30 minutes mm. is much faster. We're improving. Yeah. Every 12 <laughs> seconds takes a pic- an HD image of the sun. Yeah, um, and Yeah,
1: you don't want to look at it too long.
3: Yeah, right. I I tried
1: for 12 (laughs) seconds. It's (laughs) a long time. Um,
3: And and from that, we are able to predict things that might hit the earth. Yeah.
4: Um, So what do we do? If we make a prediction, what do we do with the few hours that we have?
3: Yeah, with 12 to 18 hours notice, what you can do is you can ground flights. You can mm-hmm. turn off uh, essential power grid items that would be damaged. You can... Uh, um, t- hospitals.
2: H- That's another. Yeah, thing right. Get things think. on
3: generators. Get generators ready. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of the power... You know, they do see these effects in the power grid now. The power, the power companies do monitor large stretches of the power grid for overloads. Um, And so there's a lot they can do to sort of prepare the grid if they know this event's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, But even still, um, this is a a point that um, the military, the government, civilian agencies, uh, they all care about. And Mm -hmm. it would be good if we had a better way to communicate what NASA sees to with to the data that the military needs to prepare for national security concerns, right. to prepare Department of Energy, and right. um, what like civilian agencies need. We need a better way to communicate between these agencies.
2: Well, and mm. and you were talking about the astronauts getting ready too. I, right. I've actually seen videos of them like, oh, an event's coming, let's all get into our, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they get ready in this International Space Station as well. Mm-hmm. Also when there's debris, apparently there's yeah. like, there's debris that orbits around and like every once in a while they're like, it's coming again. Everyone get into their module because our space station might be ripped up any second right. now.
1: Big hole. <laughs> right.
2: Yeah. Right. So, yeah. It's what kind of registered. space
1: stuff we got going around?
2: So there's space junk. It's junk. Yeah. It's
1: garbage. Yeah. Yeah,
2: There's, um, I don't know. Does anyone know more about this than I do?
3: (laughs) I I know Uh, some some of it is like leftover pieces from rockets and other launch vehicles. uh Uh, You know, I mean, it can be like shards of metal or nuts and bolts, things like that. Um,
4: Decommissioned
2: satellites. Yeah, old
0: satellites. Yeah.
2: And there'll be things that like are broken apart or whole. And these things, if they're going fast enough, can rip holes through the International Space Station. So Mm -hmm. they have to like always prepare in case it does happen, to, like, get out of their uh, areas and then in their spacesuits, go and fix it. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Just no, had no. to, just had to, know.
2: no. No, no, it's, yeah. it's really interesting because that movie Gravity, right, like, has, like, I, I never actually watched the movie Gravity. <laughs> we never watched it. We <laughs> talked about it with Dr. <laughs> Cody. But there's, like, all the space debris, right, and it, it like, hits her, like, continuously. like. Right. But it's not that common, but it does happen. I wanted to bring us back, though, to... um. Because we want to wrap this up, we always talk about also pop culture, which I guess we were just talking about Gravity.
3: I've got another one. You got it? I got a pop culture one. I, I, yeah. This is what I prepared.
2: Yes! <laughs> so. so, yeah, this is what I always ask my, my guests. Is there a pop culture like reference to your work, and is it good or is it bad?
3: When the Trappist system was announced yeah. like, earlier in the year, was almost exactly plus or minus a few months of when Star Wars, 1977. Star Wars would have reached <laughs> if it had been transmitted. Um, it would have reached Trappist One.
2: Oh wait! Right about
3: the same uh. time. So it, it is about it's 39.5 light years away.
2: So that broadcast would. So, so if Star yeah.
3: Wars had been broadcast in 1977, I realize it wasn't. It was in theaters.
4: Well, I mean, it but was on TV. But if somebody bootlegged a copy
3: and put it out, um, it would have reached Trappist coincidence coincidence uh, I don't know so there's there's
2: Tatooines <laughs> over there there's Hoths over there as you're right. telling me yeah.
3: yeah that's right
2: these are the planets in Star Wars oh Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: I do like that a bit of trivia but yeah. yeah so do you want to kind of answer that question what's your how your field is portrayed in pop culture books movies TV um, I feel like
3: it's been portrayed a lot lately yeah um, so I think in terms of like extrasolar planets we've had a lot of movies lately like uh, Interstellar, was that what it was called? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Interstellar had Love. some. Yeah, It was a really, really cool film. Yeah. But some really cre- artistic license, I think, with uh, its interpretation of planets. So I, I, was, yeah. I was excited about the black hole that they showed. I was not as excited about the, the planet, right the planet next around to the black hole. hole. Yeah. I
2: know that was. We do talk about that in another episode. Is that episode the one that too. we
1: watched together? Yes, okay. that,
2: you can, <laughs> that you can like, check out our review of flick, Interstellar. Though. It's a great flick. Yeah, but I agree that it was all kind of odd. It's yeah. very weird.
4: Yeah, my have, my problem with all the movies that have some kind of extrasolar planet or some foreign planet in there, is that they're rarely creative, and not just in that they all look like Southern California because right. they're just filming, you know, out in or the back Vancouver,
2: BC. Or right. Vancouver, right. BC. we got two options.
4: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Vancouver, but, BC or LA. So my problem is that so so BC and California, Southern California. Yeah those are both on one planet here. Our Earth is really diverse, right? right? We have all of these different landscapes available. But whenever there's a planet in a movie, it's always only one landscape, Mm -hmm. right? Like the the Ewoks were on a forest planet. Like everywhere is forest. The whole (laughs) sphere is nothing but forest. And you uh, never and same with interstellar yeah um, you know you have ocean planets and you have ice planets and you have forest planets right. but you, or you never- have the city
2: planets that have all city which is I'm like how do they breathe then? <laughs> like how do, where did the oxygen come from? <laughs> right right do you it. never yeah. have
4: an actual diverse planet right And so in my work studying Mars, Mars for a long time was just thought of as the basaltic planet. It's just nothing but lava flows everywhere. And it's the, wherever you go on the surface has probably had more or less the same geologic history of some lava flows, and then it sat there and got busted up for four billion years. But what we're learning with the rovers on Mars now is that Mars was a really diverse place. And there was water some places and less than others and glaciers in some places. And the water was highly acidic, like battery acid in some places. But in other places, there were lakes full of neutral water that might have been good enough to drink. So there are all these wow. varieties of types of environments that had existed on ancient Mars. And so I'd like to see that reflected in Hollywood. Yeah. Just some planet with more than one type of landscape on it. I just instantly thought of Middle Earth
2: of like Mordor and like Shire and I'm like that's that was just Mars you know back then yeah um, I'm sorry too nerdy um, it but way too it's <laughs> way too nerdy I know we're gonna end with that um, <laughs> but I, um, I want to thank you for talking with us about planetary geology and, and Jim to talk to us about kind of the how to actually view these um, or find these exoplanets and flares it's been super interesting so Thank you for coming to talk to us. Yes, yeah, having us. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. Thank you for joining us. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com or kmre.org and click on the podcast link. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE Spark Radio and Western Washington University. We air weekly on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or kmre.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us an email or post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. Today's episode was recorded at the Digital Media Center at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Our producer is Regina Barber DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Production was also done by Darian Brown, Suzanne Blaze, and the DMC crew. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Blackalicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet.
1: Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc, when I wrap you think iodine, nitrate, activate. Right uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound. Balance, whistle, balance, then you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients, they can explode and blow up if you
0: drop them and they hit the ground. <laughs>